This is chapter 10 of Ezra Beda's Being Zen, entitled Practicing with Pain and Suffering. Jean-Dominique Bobby, the former editor-in-chief of the French magazine Elle, wrote a book called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. This man had lived a very active and creative life until one day in 1995, when he was only 43 years old, he experienced a massive stroke that resulted in a rare condition called locked-in syndrome. While his whole body was totally paralyzed, his mind was completely functional. After lying in bed for months, he discovered he could still flutter his left eyelid. With this discovery, he devised a form of communication whereby the number of movements of this one eyelid would signify the different letters of the alphabet. This is how he spelled out each word, each sentence of his book, poignantly chronicling his thoughts and feelings as he lay locked in his body. He died two days after the book was published. In the one-page chapter entitled My Lucky Day, the author describes how the alarm clock connected to his feeding tubes was ringing continuously for half an hour. The intensely piercing beep, beep, beep sound jackhammered into his brain. As he began sweating profusely, the sweat unglued the tape over his right eye, loosening his eyelashes to scratch his pupil. Then his urinary catheter fell out, leaving him soaked in his own urine. There he was, lying in the drenched bed with the piercing sounds and the irritated eye. At that moment, a nurse came in and, oblivious to him, switched on the television. What he saw on the screen were the bold letters of a commercial asking, Were you born lucky? The author relates this story without a trace of self-pity. It's primarily a description of his thoughts and sensations. To really appreciate the story, all we have to do is imagine ourselves in the same situation. What would our reactions be? In general, we don't want to have very much to do with pain. Most living creatures share this aversion. It appears to be a natural and even intelligent part of the evolutionary process. Yet human beings seem unique in their ability to contort from their pain into the state that we commonly call suffering. Suppose my mate leaves me. There is a hole inside, unmistakably painful, heavy, with fear and longing. The beliefs go spinning around. No one will ever be there for me. Why is life so hard? What's the point anyway? And of course, my natural impulse is to resist residing in the painful hole of rejection and loneliness. Unmistakably, there is suffering. How did the pain turn into suffering? What is actually happening 
Or suppose one day I wake up feeling sick all over. The days turn into weeks, the weeks turn into months, and the pain and discomfort become more and more debilitating. The mind cries out, longing for relief. Why is this happening to me? This is too much to bear. What will become of me? Naturally, there is a great resistance to the physical pain and discomfort, and unmistakably, there is suffering. But how did the pain turn into suffering? And what is actually happening in the moment? The process starts with our natural tendency to avoid pain. This is a fact of life. We don't like pain. We suffer because we marry our instinctive aversion to pain with a deep-seated belief that life should be free from pain. In resisting our pain by holding this belief, we strengthen just what we're trying to avoid. When we make pain the enemy, we solidify it. This resistance is where our suffering begins. Again, on experiencing pain, we almost always immediately resist. On top of the physical discomfort, we quickly add a layer of negative judgments. Why is this happening to me? I can't bear this, and so on. Regardless of whether we actually voice these judgments, we thoroughly believe them, which reinforces their devastating power. Rather than see them as a grafted-on filter, we accept them unquestioned as the truth. This blind belief in our thoughts further solidifies our physical experience of pain into the dense heaviness of suffering. And though we can intellectually accept Buddha's first noble truth that life entails suffering, when it happens to us, we rarely want anything to do with it. How do we live the practice life when we're in pain? To apply such phrases as be one with the pain or there is no self and therefore no one to suffer is neither comforting nor helpful. We must first understand that both our pain and our suffering are truly our path, our teacher. While this understanding doesn't necessarily entail liking our pain or our suffering, it does liberate us from regarding them as enemies we have to conquer. Once we have this understanding, which is a fundamental change in how we relate to life, we can begin to deal with the layers of pain and suffering that make up so much of our existence. In early 1991, I had an acute and prolonged relapse of an immune system disease in which my muscles attacked themselves. 
The main physical symptoms were great muscle weakness, painful, flu-like feelings as if my cells were polluted, and worst of all, pervasive and relentless nausea. Fortunately, the nausea did not result in vomiting, but it was nonetheless very unpleasant. Within two weeks, these physical symptoms had been supplemented by classical psychological symptoms, anger, self-pity, depression. I felt tremendous helplessness. I also felt hopelessness, the fear of being forever shut off from life. I didn't want to complain, but I also felt isolated because I didn't know how to communicate what I was feeling. I felt guilt because I couldn't fulfill my duties. I felt a sense of shame in the misguided belief that the illness perhaps resulted from my own inadequacies. Although I didn't consciously believe I was dying, the fear of death was definitely powering these other feelings. Beyond even that, I felt the fear of the pain of dying, fear of the total loss of control, and even fear of dying in fear. On the one hand, I had definitive and objective physical symptoms with which to deal. On the other, I had layer upon layer of dark, emotion-based thoughts. These strongly believed thoughts not only exacerbated the physical symptoms, but also had their own painful quality. Right in the middle of this, my closest friend of 25 years died suddenly and unexpectedly of a heart attack. Despite my years of meditation, I was not prepared to deal with all these circumstances. I felt devoid of a spiritual anchor. This was when I first called Joko Beck and received her pointed yet compassionate advice to see illness and suffering as my path. Joko also mentioned that I might find Stephen Levine's book, Healing into Life and Death, helpful. My understanding of this idea that we need to see our difficulties as our path changed after that phone call. My belief had been that I couldn't practice because my life was so difficult. To accept these difficulties as my practice would mean I'd have to stop resisting and willingly let them in. For whatever reason, it was my good fortune to be able to hear Joko's words and literally take them to heart. Years later, in reflecting on these events, I thought of Thomas Merton's words, true love and prayer are learned in the moment when prayer has become impossible and the heart has turned to stone. After talking to Joko, I began reading Stephen Levine's powerful and comprehensive book on practicing with illness. I began doing five different meditations a day and continued this for almost two years. Over time, I learned to see the difference between the physical pain, 
the resistance to the pain and the layers of emotion-based thoughts. I began to see the physical symptoms of discomfort as if they were in the center of a circle with a concentric layer of resistance around it and a concentric layer of emotions and thoughts around that. Since the episodes of nausea were unrelenting, that particular symptom provided a vast laboratory for my practice, bringing awareness to the nausea over and over, I saw clearly several particularly powerful thoughts that were making up the outer ring of this circle. I can't take this. What's going to happen to me? And poor me. I practice clearly seeing and repeatedly labeling these thoughts as they arose. Poor me may not sound like a big deal, but I cannot overemphasize the power of this mostly wordless emotional state. And the very intensity of the emotional reaction, I can't take this, is enough to tell us that we are caught in a belief system. Without awareness, these beliefs slip by so easily that we don't even question their truth. With awareness, the thoughts can eventually be seen as thoughts and nothing more. In fact, we can begin to realize that, that they may not even be true. Thus, the suffering is no longer fueled by our blind acceptance of our beliefs as a truth about reality. Once I clarified these beliefs, it was easier to bring awareness to the resistance itself. Acknowledging the resistance as a physical, sensory experience is a big step. No longer seeing it as the enemy, the resistance with a capital R, we can begin the process of gradually softening into the sensations of resistance themselves. We bring awareness to wherever we experience tightness, pushing away, or holding. We soften those energies with the light touch of awareness, opening the edges around the pain. At first, going directly into our pain may not even be an option. In the beginning, I certainly couldn't encounter my nausea head-on, but gradually approaching the pain from the edges made a more direct approach possible. No longer believing the thoughts, no longer fighting the resistance, left me with just the physical sensations of nausea. But now it was a physical experience without the suffering. I saw clearly how we hold our suffering in place with fear-based thoughts that arise in reaction to pain. These thoughts are further solidified by our resistance to letting the pain just be. As often as I was able, 
I would breathe into the heart space on the in-breath and then send loving kindness to my body, to my immune system via the out-breath. With this sense of spaciousness and heart, I found I could enter directly into the sensations of nausea. I could, in the moments when I could experience the nausea, not as pain, but as intense physical energy, I was struck by a sense of quiet joy. Sometimes I felt a depth of appreciation that by any ordinary standards would simply not compute. Opening to pain itself may still not be possible if the pain is intense. But in most cases, pain is not as unbearable as we think it is. <clears throat> Although the sensations may remain unpleasant, it is often possible for us to actually experience them. Occasionally, bringing a softening awareness to the pain can even neutralize the sensations. Certainly, we can't always transform pain from meaningless suffering into a sense of spaciousness, but at least we can practice seeing into the layers of beliefs and resistance that hold our suffering in place, thereby coming closer to gently opening to what is. But seeing into the layers of beliefs and resistance is often difficult because our conditioning can go very deep. Yet, left unexplored, these beliefs that are most deeply hidden are the very beliefs that silently run our lives. For example, how many of us, when we get seriously ill, engage in what is commonly known as the battle against illness. Even when we understand how to practice with discomfort, it is still easy to get caught in the false belief, so prevalent even today, that we somehow create our own illness, and that with clear practice we can defeat it. Almost all of us believe on some level that physical symptoms imply a gap in our practice. We have the deep-seated view that if we practice long enough and hard enough, we'll see through our problems. Underneath this view is the even more hidden belief that life should be or can be free from pain. Yet the Buddha's basic teaching is that pain simply is. The hidden belief that if our practice is strong enough and deep enough, we can be free from pain is most often based on fear. We fear, perhaps more than anything, the helplessness of the loss of control. For some, like myself, a reaction may be to cling to identities, of the doer who can accomplish things, of the knower who can control life through knowing, that we hope will ward off our experiencing the fear of helplessness. This fear of helplessness 
also prevents us from experiencing genuine compassion. It is so much easier to write someone off, including ourselves, by reducing illness to some blind spot that's not being faced than it is to feel the helplessness and loss of control the illness often triggers. But the real key is to surrender to helplessness itself. We can do this only when we give up asking why, which is again the mind hoping to control through knowing, and instead simply attend to the what of the moment. This what is not just the physical discomfort, but all the deeply held beliefs associated with the discomfort. We get so hooked into trying to find the meaning behind our illness or pain that we often ignore the incredible teachings that are right there in front of us within the whatness of our present moment experience of symptoms, beliefs, and emotions. An old Zen line says, on a withered tree, a flower blooms. We often think that being healed means the illness and pain will go away. But healing does not necessarily mean that the physical body will mend any more than a withered tree will become young again. Healing is not just about physical symptoms. Many people heal and still remain physically sick or even die. Many who become physically well never really heal. Healing involves clearing the pathway to the open heart, the heart that knows only connectedness. When we experience this openness, the flower blooms regardless of what happens to our body. In the diving bell and the butterfly, the author, though completely immobilized and subjected to endless discomforts, was still able, at least in some measure, to fly free as a butterfly. To heal, to become whole, means we no longer identify with ourselves as just this body, as just our suffering. We identify with a vaster sense of being. The fact is that the heart is always open. However, the pathway to this heart is blocked by years of conditioning. It is overgrown with protections, pretenses, deeply held core beliefs, pictures of who we think we should be, fears, anger, confusion, and our resistance to life as it is. Mostly, we don't want our pain or our suffering. Mostly, we want to be taken care of. We want someone 
such as a mate or a teacher or something such as more favorable life circumstances or a big experience to make everything okay. But until we're willing to learn from our suffering, the path to the open heart will stay blocked. Until we stop running away from our pain, our suffering will continue. Perhaps the greatest pain is our resistance to pain itself. But sometimes we can't run away. Sometimes very difficult circumstances in life make it clear that there is no easy way out. Who's to say how difficult things have to get before we stop resisting? Who's to say how long it will take to learn what it means to become willing? At what point will we be able to recognize that the painful circumstances of our life really are our best teacher? When I reflect back on this period of my life when I felt most lost, I can see clearly that it was the illness and all the baggage that came along with it, namely all my suffering, that was the catalyst to turn my life right side up. I didn't want my nausea or my illness. I didn't want my sense of loss. I just wanted them to disappear. Thus, my suffering arose. Once I understood that my illness was my path, it gradually became clear that real healing was not about the bodies getting better or about having all the suffering disappear. It was about being willing to all of it just be. It was about bringing awareness to layers of emotion-based beliefs that were blocking access to the open heart. Of course, I still cared about recovering physically. I continued to do whatever seems helpful for bringing my body into balance, including seeking traditional medical care, as well as enjoyments such as eating chocolate or outings to the movies. What I've truly discovered is an inner understanding that no longer denies the value of pain, difficult circumstances, and suffering. Once I got over the worst of the physical symptoms and began to function fairly well, I realized how easy it would be to slip back into old routines. I could use the remission of my immune system disease to pretend that everything was fine. But fortunately, I learned enough to know that this would just be more skating on thin ice. I began the practice of designating one day a week as a quote-unquote sick day. No matter how well I was feeling, I would live that day as if I were still sick. Although I would not spend hours on the couch as I had during some phases of the illness, I would intentionally slow down all my movements. 
I could then appreciate the depths of awareness that are possible when we slow down enough to let life in. Observing thoughts without getting caught in them, feeling the texture of life without resisting, seeing how we don't need to be so busy, dropping attachment to comfort, seeing into the roots of fear, experiencing the quiet joy of mundane activities. I so value this one-day practice for keeping my priorities straight that I've continued it over the last nine years. As well, I became a hospice volunteer. My job is to go to the homes of terminally ill patients to simply be with them or help them in any way I can. This practice has been invaluable to me in that the intensity of the situation helps keep me at my edge. Seeing others in pain, seeing others struggling with the often intense suffering surrounding death serves to bring whatever unhealed pain remains back to the surface. But now I can experience this with the understanding that pain simply is and that when we resist it, when we believe the thoughts that arise out of it, we turn our pain into the heaviness of my suffering. Each hospice visit reminds me that what is required for real healing is that instead of pushing away our pain, we acknowledge it, experience its texture as best we can, and allow it to penetrate to the open heart. This kind of healing does not come from forced effort nor from doing battle with ourselves. It comes from a soft effort born of the understanding that there is no enemy. As this understanding deepens, as we become more willing to allow life to just be, we discover one essential ingredient in the process. Kindness. Although I have been basically healthy for the last several years, occasionally the old symptoms reappear full-blown and intense, lasting from several hours to several days. Sometimes when I'm reduced to lying in a fetal position, I watch on an almost microscopic level how I try to turn this pain into suffering. Thoughts of resistance flood my mind, followed by the voices of fear and self-pity. As soon as I hear these voices for what they are, they lose their hold. My awareness goes directly to the center of the chest, breathing into the heart space on the in-breath, and extending loving-kindness to my body on the out-breath. Although I believe that awareness is instrumental in bringing the body back into balance, who is to say how these processes really work? One thing I can say with certainty is that as long as we resist our pain, as long as we see our difficulties as obstacle, as long as we continue to struggle against ourselves, 
we can never really heal. We will remain forever locked inside our own diving bell of suffering. Working with our pain and suffering requires both the precision of seeing clearly through our believed thoughts and a softening awareness that allows us to enter with a light touch into those areas we have tended to avoid. Working in this way, we see how much of our suffering is unnecessary. This clarity in turn gives us the courage to continue working with suffering, even through those moments when it seems as if it will never end. What arises is an increasing compassion for both ourselves and the whole human drama. We see that pain and suffering are not the end game. They are simply the most effective vehicles for awakening our hearts.